Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. So I want to start just, you know, I think one of the, you know, a sort of really important backdrop to this whole episode for those who sort of kind of picked up on it or did pick up on it or whatever is, is like what's, right, we get the sense that Shvutz, and even her name, right? it didn't occur to me t- till today. Um, right, Shvut is a very unusual name, which means essentially settlement. Um, that's what right, that's what Shvut means. Um, and you know, you you sort of piece together from Hodaya's interactions with her niece Shvut that um, I mean, so I guess it can be pieced together that that her family was you know lived in Gush Katif, which was the the settle Israeli settlement in the Gaza Strip that was um evacuated as part of the disengagement from uh you know as under the Sharon government in 2005 um as part of you know they sort of pulled out of Gaza and essentially Sharon said you know it was sort of kind of like a uh attempt at peace maybe but more it was just saying like it's not we don't think it's worth our time and particularly manpower to sort of be protecting these few Jewish settlements in Gaza um, we're just going to pull out of Gaza and like Gaza's taken overtaken by Hamas like we're just pulling out um, and there's this real sense of trauma of those people including Shvut who were there and lived through it and were being told by their rabbis and their teachers and everyone else that, you know, God wants you to be here. God is going to come through for you. And for us, you know, God, you know, don't, don't leave, just pray. You know, if you pray hard enough, and that's, uh, you know, um, was touching on what Rabbi Barbara was saying, right? It was sort of this sense of, you know, maybe if you pray hard enough, and really, really pray from your the deepest depths, God will come through. And then it's sort of like, what happens when that doesn't happen? <laughs> you know, what happens when you're when you're saying, okay, it, it's a test of my faith, you know, and I'm gonna, but it, I, I have, I'm gonna demonstrate my fullest faith and and you know how devoted I am to this cause. And then, you know, I actually wanna, I'm just gonna share my. Um, screen for a moment and share this a bit of this video it's from a news segment um from i don't know five years ago so but talking about the the disengagement um like הם לא ידעו מה יהיה, לאן ילכו, ובעיקר גילו לתדהמתם את הבועה. החיים בארץ נמשכו כרגיל. בבוקר היית במלחמה, אשכרה מלחמה, צמיגים בוערים ברחובות, אנשים צועקים, בכי, חיילים עוקרים אנשים, טירוף. ואתה מגיע לכניסה לירושלים, ואנשים יושבים בבית קפה, והכל רגוע, ואתה רוצה לעמוד ולצרוח להם, מה, מה נסגר איתכם? יש פה מלחמה, יש פה, קורה פה משהו, וה, והחיים שלכם ככה. עשר שנים אחרי... Okay, are you able to see that? 
Okay. Um, Yamit is uh, different. That's that was in Sinai. Um, to Robert's question, so you know, just to, I just wanted to give a brief sense, and you know, of, of sort of, and by the way, orange, orange is a, so, uh, the, was sort of the color of Gush Katif. So if you saw the orange flags, everyone wearing orange. Um, I know, like when I spent a Shabbat in Gush Etzion in Alon Shvut, in um, you know, which is a settlement in the West Bank. You know, and, and there was an, a, there was something, a class or something I went to, and there was this family that was all dressed in orange, you know, not like T-shirts, but like the woman was wearing an orange dress and the kids had orange shirts and whatever. And, and whoever I was with, one of my rabbis was saying, they only wear orange every day. All of their outfits are, are orange. Um, and it's like a way of remembering and also signaling to other people that like, we haven't given up on this cause. Um, you know, this is something that we still believe in. And, you know, you really see that among a number of the, the people who lived in Gush Katif that like, they still, you know, in their hearts, they're still residents of Gush Katif. They just can't live there right now. Um, I, remember, I remember that summer I was at Ramah that summer as a first year counselor. And I remember that some of the Mishlachat, some of the Israelis who came had orange, um, like tied on their, on their backpacks. And I mean, we, we kind of knew what was going on, but we didn't, we didn't recognize that it was like this political statement that they were making by having some kind of orange. It was like, um, not a tassel, but it was like, uh, I don't know, an orange like band almost like wrapped around their backpack. Some of them, not all of them, which was part of the conversation of why do you have it, but you don't. Um, so it, it got brought, is that where you're from? Renee, what do you mean? Am I from what? I'm wearing orange. I'm wearing a red shirt, but I guess it could be. It could, yeah, it's, it's orange. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what you were talking about. I'm definitely not from there. I'm definitely from Los Angeles. Anyway, okay, you can continue. Um, oh, interesting. And Norm saying, you know, he remembers seeing everyone in wearing orange and getting to Tel Aviv and everyone seeing wearing blue, which was the color of withdrawal, you know, the withdrawal. <laughs> and you even see, I mean, you sort of see it where, Hodaya refers to it as the disengagement and her niece says Gerush, you know, the expulsion essentially, you know, is even the language of what word you use to describe what happened. Um, you know, you see that play out and how she's sort of flashing out there. And, you know, one thing that just in that interview, the, um, in that news segment, I don't know if people, you know, could follow the Hebrew, but with the, you know, one of these guys there was saying is like, you know, we're in Gush Katif and in our, during the evacuation and like in our mind this is like war this is like the future of the jewish people this is like god you know whatever you know we like they felt this sense of like a divine mandate and almost like you know a civil war type of thing um so keep in mind true game was all filmed in or aired between 2010 and 12 ish to, yeah, around I think 2010 to 12. So, for, you know, so this is five, right? 2008 to 2012. Eight to 12. Okay, so for you know, so it's, it's bigger 2008, recent. the first season I remember. Right. So that was three years after the fact. So you know, it's it's more recent history. Um, so, um, anyway, thinking about um, no, I lost my train of thought. With with uh, you yeah, know, with being in. 
in, 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 in Israel. Oh, right, right, right. Being in Israel and, you know, and, and the people in Gush Katif thinking like, this is, right, this is everything. This is like, yeah, I mean, you can see from the video there, of, you know, how people were being pulled out by soldiers and they, you know, there, fortunately there wasn't really violent resistance. There might've been like a tiny bit of, uh, you know, let's say semi-violent re- resistance, but um, but like there weren't any battles or like real fights, but it was a lot of people who just sat in their houses and were dragged out, you know, um, like you saw in that video there. But this guy who was being interviewed said, you know, for us, this was like the, you know, this incredible, not in a good way, but like just life-changing moment. And then you get to the entrance to Jerusalem and like people are sitting in cafes and having coffee. And it's like, life is normal and they're like what what do you mean life is normal like we just went through this life-changing experience like you know we feel that you know that this is like a a huge moment in israeli history and people are just like living their normal lives they don't experience that um and so i think you get a little bit of that with shvut the character um and just almost like needing to lash out as a way of uh, almost as a way of remembering in a way of like feeling like you know god didn't come through for us there I mean, so one of the things we want to talk about um, today is sort of the religious element of that. Like, I mean, the whole episode and we were talking about before, not the whole episode, but that at least storyline touches on struggles of faith. And one cause of struggles of faith like that is, you know, when you put your faith in let's say, I mean, you, when you attach religious significance to political outcomes, um, right? So there, and there where people see settlement in, I mean, the West Bank or Gaza as part of a religious mandate and the religious leadership is telling them this is what God wants and saying, don't evacuate. God's going to come through. Like, how do you- or this is our land, right? This is our land, this, but like, this is our land from the Torah. The Torah says, settle the land. Like, now what do you do when that doesn't come through the way you expect it? Like, how do you, like, what does that do to a person's faith? And I'm saying this is something that's very timely um, in America right now because of the ways that people, um, you know, particularly a, a good chunk of the people who voted for, for, Donald Trump for president, attach religious significance to his, to him, um, that he's sort of, uh, you know, God's chosen one, or, you know, God wants him there. And so, I mean, it's not just America, this happens in Israel, it happens, you know, but like, once you start attaching religious significance to current events and political outcomes, it becomes a whole different story of like what what happens to a person's faith and also like how does a person ever back down? It's about very hard to compromise if something is religious mandate or God's will versus, you know, the political outcome that I hoped for. Um, and it creates a whole lot of messiness in a whole lot of areas, which is like a little bit of what, you know, of what we see in this episode, but I think also what we see in our world right now. Yeah, Ramesh, is anything... Uh, I, no, I mean, I, I just think that, that part of what we're seeing in this episode that is so powerful is that she is having a real a real moment of what it means to to believe in something so strongly and not have that do anything, right? That belief doesn't 
provide action all the time. And whenever I think about this kind of, that kind of attachment to a belief in God, I, I think about the Misha Berach and anybody who's ever prayed for someone to get better. And in so many ways, it's a, it's a very cathartic practice, right? That we say someone's name, that we bring them to mind, that we hope other people's hear other people hear the names and and bring them to mind as well. And for anybody who has lived in you know the modern day world, we also know that if you just pray for someone on a Misha Barach list and you and they don't get treatment or they don't go to the doctor for a cold or whatever, they're not going to get better just because you say their name off of off of a Misha Barach list. And that I mean, very personally, that is something that when my uncle was uh, dying of cancer, that was really hard for me because I wanted to say his name. I wanted him to get better. And yet, kind of logically, I knew that just saying his name was not what was going to make him better. And so I think that that in her case, in Schwut's case, in this episode, she's having that moment of but I prayed so hard and I, I was doing everything that I was told to do that would kind of open up the heavens, right? She says she cried, she laughed, she sang as loud as she could and nothing happened. And, and I think that where her sister, uh, sorry, her aunt is so um, powerful in that moment is that she says to her, but you feel something still, even though it might not be this attachment and this love, you still feel something for that relationship with God. And as she says about herself, that's more than I can say. I don't have any attachment. I don't have any feelings. There's no anger, no annoyance, no love, nothing. There's nothing there anymore. It's just, it is, it is what it is. Um, Denise, I see your hand. I want to, I'm going to call on you. And then the other thing that I want to bring up is I was mentioning this to Rabbi Pernick last night that there's something very interesting about the way in which she, Shvut has left for the night. They have no idea where she is. And when she comes back home, they go through all these places that she could have been and she slams the door and she goes into her room and she says, I was at the Kotel. Is that okay? And all of a sudden, everything's very calm. And as I was saying to Rabbi Pernick, like, if you've ever walked to the Kotel late at night, like, that is not, that's not just like a walk in the park. <laughs> that's not particularly safe either. And yet the Kotel seems to be this, this place, this experience of, okay, well, if you're going to the Kotel, everything was going to be fine. And so when she says she doesn't feel anything, I'm like, wait a second, you just, you just bought into the Kotel being this really remarkable holy place. You must feel something or know something. So I thought that was a very interesting dissonance that I'm not even sure that they meant to write into the plot line, but that I picked up on uh, in her character. Denise, did you want to say something? Yeah. So um, I also noticed that about the Kotel and and I thought, because I, I feel like Ludiah has had all these struggles, you know, with her faith, that when she went to the Kotel, that Hodiah understood, like, okay, you're really struggling with issues and you're not just acting out and going to clubs or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I felt like that kind of stopped her in her tracks. 
of getting mad. Um, but what I was going to say also, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I cut you off. Oh, uh, no, because it's like it delays on Zoom. So um, I forgot. Oh, just that I feel like a lot of times I know this in my own life and with people that I've been close to and stuff that like, I think when people have these things that they consider a crisis of faith or a failure of God, I think a lot of times it's a failure of human beings and that, you know, they were really given bad information because, you know, any rabbi who tells you, you know, the tanks are right there. No, 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 no. Just say another Shema. Like, like he's just irresponsible. And, but that's not God's fault. So I just wanted to make that pitch for God. <laughs> well, I'm sure that God appreciates it. And I agree with you. I, I think that a lot of what we do in terms of saying that it's in the name of God or that God will help us or God will this or God will that, you have to be able to see where you're also gaining support and help from people. Because if you don't recognize that, then you're also not recognizing one of the first things that we're told in the Torah, which is people are made in the image of God. So if people are made in the image of God and you can't see God and you can't talk to God in in a way that you can just, you know, speed dial your way in, you there you need to be able to rely on people and to believe that they're made in the image of God to then feel that connection with them. There's that whole yeah. um all you've all heard it and People say it's midrash. People say it's a joke. People, anyway, I don't know where it's from, but the whole idea of the guy on the boat and all these things are sent, mm -hmm. and, then, and then God says, "Yeah, but I sent you all those all those different devices. Why do I have to come and and save you?" So that's exactly what what you're bringing up. And also thinking that it's like very ego to think that what I want, you know, whether it's the saving of a city or saving someone's life or whatever like it's like thinking that we're on an equivalence with God that we know what the right thing is and if it didn't happen it's his fault not not that we misunderstood something or lacked some information but he got it wrong and and that's like you know I it's totally natural to feel that I just think you can't really intellectually honestly put that on God it's, it's also a, right it's an effective way for people to get you to do what you what they want you to do to say god, why, yeah, god like, this is like meaning it's it's a manipulative device to you know this is not just what i want this is god's will um but then right when when it doesn't happen are you prepared you know you who said this is god's will are you prepared to deal with the ramifications of you know how right. are you going to now counsel those people who you told that this is God's will when it doesn't work out the way you said it was going to work out. Yeah. Rebecca and Leonard, you have your hand up. Yeah. <clears throat> when I, uh, sort of consistent with when, when, um, Shvut, is that it? Yeah, when, yeah. when Shvut, um, uh, right away took off her skirt and she's had her pants when she first met her aunt. And so she was clearly rebelling against her strict orthodoxy. So when I heard her say she went to the Kotel, my first thought was that because she here she was hiding it was that it was to participate in some sort of mixed gathering or service of men and women together or something. You know, at first I thought, oh, is it like social or no, is it religious? But something mixed, something forbidden, though it was at the hotel. Anyway, that was like my first thought. 
Interesting. Interesting. I, just because you brought up this moment, I'll share a funny story from my own life. Um, I love Maya Sharim. It's, it's just a, probably a flaw. Um, but I really like going there. I, it's where I bought all my books when I was living in Israel. I love going into Maya Sharim. And when you go into Maya Sharim, you dress the part, right? You, you put on a skirt and you have long sleeves and, your collarbone is covered and uh, I didn't have to cover my hair, but those who are married would cover their hair. You know, you, you, you put on all the garb. And I remember living in Israel because I lived, well, I didn't live so close, but I went to school so close to Meisharim and I would like going, I would keep a long skirt in my backpack. And when I would get there was a particular street that I would walk down and right when you got to the entrance of Maya Sharim, I would stop and I would take a skirt out of my backpack and I'd put a skirt on over my pants if I wasn't wearing a skirt already and I would go into Maya Sharim. And when I saw that her do that, um, which was obviously the opposite, she took it off, but there is this, there is this very interesting piece of you, you almost, uh, become someone different when you have that skirt on or off, right? She was leaving home and taking that skirt off to then be in this secular world. Um, and, and for me, it was the opposite, but it, but it's interesting that, that that played so much into her, uh, identity, right? That when she went to the hotel, she knew how to dress and what to, you know, where to go and all of that. Um, and, and that was just a, that was part of who she was. And her aunt goes through the same thing earlier on in the show where she's having all these dilemmas of, I know what I'm supposed to look like and what I'm supposed to show you on the outside, but that's not who I am on the inside. Any other thoughts or questions about this? Norm, you look like you're about to say something. You want to I, I am. I am. I was about to raise my hand. I think that leaders and ordinary Jews often find it, often feel like they want to make God do their will um, rather than for them to do God's will. And it amazes me that people can buy into promises that, you know, yes, we should occupy this and God will be on our side when, you know, we have a couple thousand years of history, if not more, definitely more, that show us that you can't count on God to do what you want him to do when you want him to do it or in any kind of timely fashion. Not um, in the way that you want it to be done. You know. Certainly the way, not the way you want it to be done. Um, and that happens when you're praying for somebody to survive and recover sometimes. And it certainly applies to deciding what part of Israel we're going to settle in and expect to be safe there. It just isn't something you can count on divine intervention. Yeah. Karen, you have your hand up. Yeah, she's so not feeling anything and she's struggling. Why is it such a problem with the boyfriend? Now, it probably is a pro yeah, because he's not Jewish enough. He's not observant enough. He's not yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Sorry. And um a lot of she's. I just didn't know what she we were talking about. Yeah, okay. Right, exactly. But, uh, you know, and I know she's, because she's maybe not made a decision to not be religious, and she's still on the fence and doing that, and he not being very religious, 
Maybe that I, you know what I'm saying? She's so I don't feel not, I don't feel like you have this and, but yet she can't be with him because he's not religious enough. Yeah. I mean, I think being with him then decides for her that she can't be wishy-washy any longer and, and she still needs to be wishy-washy to figure out who she is. But he's willing to go along with it and learn from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, but you also don't like flip a switch and one day all of a sudden you're from or one day all of a sudden you're secular. So I right. think she feels like taking him along his journey and probably Pranik, you can chime in if you want, but um, taking him along his journey, that that would be a ton of work for her to do when she's trying to take herself along her own journey and they're going in opposite directions. So I don't know, that's just my take. I don't have any like <laughs> sources to prove that for you, but... Did you want to say anything on that, right, Brian? No, I mean, I think you're right. You know, it's interesting that, like, when it comes to Shavuot, right, she's going to the Kotel. She's, like, she's she's wants that connection. She does, I mean, and, and she feels a connection. She's angry, but anger is a, right, as I said, that's, that's displays you have a relationship, you have feelings. And, like, for Hodiah, it seems to be, I think, in, in a lot of ways, less about God and more about, observance so you know society her family these kinds of things like she she doesn't feel i mean you know even the scene at the ends when you hear the sirens you know in, in jerusalem the sirens go off 40 minutes before shabbat starts that you know shabbat's coming and she's there watching tv and kind of staring as her niece said you know she said what are you watching she's like i'm not watching I'm just staring um you know but she's sitting there staring at the tv as shabbat's coming in you know, and it's almost like you feel that sense of, you know, when, when her niece did the same thing, it's almost like a, you know, removing yourself. It's like a, like, you don't know what to do. So you're just kind of sitting and, you know, detaching. Um, it almost feels like detachment. Um, interesting that you thought that it was the TV. When I was watching it, I also was like, oh, is that the TV? And then I think it was the radio behind her, um, which doesn't she's make She's watching the TV too. She turns on the TV at the, like, end? at the very end. Yeah. It was a TV. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was the radio, which was behind her because that's how the scene, the scene panned to the radio. Um, but I, it's interesting whether it doesn't matter which vessel it was, you shouldn't be doing it on Shabbos, <laughs> but, um, but the, so it I, wasn't quite Shabbos yet, but. Okay. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, but I think that there is there is something interesting. If it was the radio, there is something interesting that um, that that she's just kind. She she doesn't even really care. Like it's just it's on, and she's just sitting there, and she doesn't do anything about it. She doesn't seem to care that it's on, but she also doesn't seem to care enough that Shabbat's coming in to turn it off. Meanwhile, when I heard the, I don't even live in Israel, and when I heard the siren, I was like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? And then I realized it's A, not Shabbat, and B, I don't live in Israel, and I'm watching a TV show. Um, but but there is like that visceral reaction of, oh my gosh, Shabbat's about to be here. I need to do something for those of us who have lived in Israel. And that, uh, what? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, excuse me. Um, and uh, anyway, you took me off my train of thought. So there we go. Um, does anybody want to say anything about the Kotel? <laughs> okay. Well, it, yeah. it has it obviously has symbolic value. And to pick any possible location for where she was trying to define her religious inner self in Jerusalem, that's it. 
Yeah. It, it is um, stereotypically it, right? And I that that to me was what was so interesting that there are many other places in Israel um, that you could go that would be, you know, potentially just as spiritually powerful. But she goes to the place that most people would connect to an idea of like the highest level of spirituality. Um, and she tries to find that connection there. Uh, I don't know. Did anybody else have any feelings about that, about the fact that she went to the Kotel? Yes, Norm. The first time I was at the Kotel um, in 1975, I found it, I had just a tremendously moving experience. Um, it was a Friday afternoon. We participated with three different minyanim, one for um, Mincha, one for um, Kabbalah Shabbat, and one for Mariv. Um, and the entire gestalt, the entire experience was absolutely amazing to me and, and wonderful. And on my subsequent visits, it has been very disappointing. Um, but I think that it's reasonable that somebody who is coming from a from background is considering leaving that is being somewhat disillusioned might go there to see if she finds some spiritual connection, especially if she has in the past found that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's looking for it, right? Like the fact that she goes there means she's looking, she doesn't, she's, she's missing it. And I yeah. think that when she said that was where she was, it wasn't that her aunt feels like, oh, that's okay, so much as she understands that she wasn't out partying, she's having a spiritual crisis, which right. Shavut is having. And I understand that. Um, I'm looking forward to being by Zoom or Facebook at, at the hotel tomorrow morning, um, since it's Rosh Chodesh. Um, but... Uh, uh, it's, I, I, I think that was the thing that the aunt at that point recognized she's going through a spiritual crisis um, and that changed things. Yeah. Right. Le- Rebecca and Leonard and then I have lots to say about the Kotel. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm not surprised that she went to the Kotel because that seems to be a universal spiritual center um, for for a lot of people, I think I was going to share that uh, our daughter went on the birthright program to Israel just over a year ago, and the um, the counselor, the head counselor, had asked the parents ahead of time to write your student um, a letter uh, about you know spirituality and encouraging them because for a lot of uh, attendees, you know, part of the the um, objective is to create a spiritual bond with Israel and they gave them the letters and we knew they were going to write before they visited the Kotel. So, um, so that was a, you know, purposely designed um, part of the program that, you know, with all the um, uh, emotionality that comes with a, a visit to the Kotel. So it seemed appropriate that Shvut would try to go there to um, feel something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for anyone who's been to the Kotel, I'm sure you've seen people who are there just, you know, davening because that's where they daven, or people who are there 
crying over a Sidur or a book of Tehillim or whatever it is, um, really finding a lot of connection in that particular spot um, for whatever they're asking for, whatever they're pleading for, whatever they're grateful, you know, whatever, whatever it is that they're doing, there is an emotional reaction that most people have when they, or not most people, I shouldn't say it that way, that people go there to find, um, and that some people have when they are in that spot. Um, Rai Parnik, do you have anything to say about the, the Kotel or? Which one? Which Kotel? No, which, which Rabbi Parnik? Oh, it's like the hotel. Your dad's always welcome to speak. <laughs> I mean, one thing I'm thinking about is is it's not just the hotel, but I think a number of you know equivalent things. Like so much, I think is about how the experience is framed. Also, like I remember one one trip to Israel. I think it was when I was like a senior in high school and it was a synagogue trip. You know, so it was with my dad. And my dad can attest to this or say if I'm telling, saying wrong, but I think if I remember correctly, like the tour guide just like didn't make a big deal about when we like entered Jerusalem. It was sort of like we're on the bus, and I was like, okay, now we're in Jerusalem. And like my dad sort of was like, okay, we're gonna like sing Yerushalayim Shel Zahav because there was some there was like that sense of like, you know, like in order for people to feel, I shouldn't not necessarily, but in a lot of ways, like in order to feel something, you need to frame the experience, you need to set it up, you need to build the anticipation, you, right? Like that's part of this that you're sort of saying, okay, now we're like we're gonna go to this spot where you can see it from afar, and you, right? Like you're sort of building it up because like without any of that, it's a wall, you know? Like so, I you know, look, there are the people who just on their own go to the hotel and feel it because they sort of know of the religious significance that's attached to it. Um, but I think so much of it is also about like the framing of the experience. And, you know, it's worth wondering with someone like Shrut who's saying like, I'm not feeling anything. I'm just gonna like walk to the hotel and see if I feel something without like, it's not a magic box, you know, like it's a wall. Um, it's not just, for most people on its own going to suddenly inspire feelings when you're not having feelings like you need to be in a place where you're I don't know like open or you're like ready for that and I think you know she's sort of hoping I don't feel anything I'm going to go there and see if something pops up and it's like nope don't feel it um and I think that's often like a downside of, of places like the hotel and we sort of I, I'm expect or imagine that like they can do the magic for us and like it's a wall you know like it's not going to suddenly make everything better for you for most people some people like like you know do feel you know and they're crying over their Tehillim books and whatnot but um yeah it's like something your dad is unmuted I am unmuted now yes I, I tried to comment before but it was like the tv commercial yeah it's like okay so to go back to a different generation that some people here will connect with, um, the first time I went to the hotel, which was like probably 1972 or three, and um, or maybe it was even after that. But I know I remember somebody said to me, it was like the scene in The Godfather, the original Godfather movie. And everybody back then was talking about the horse's head in the bed, the horse's head in the bed, the horse's head in the bed. And you see the movie and it's like, okay, there's a horse's head in the bed. It's like, you know, okay. You know, you've, you've already heard so much about it. You get there. And like Josh says, it's a big wall. Um, 
it's always been a place that's been tough for me to to really feel a strong connection with because it's uh, I don't know it just uh, you know I, I and I've known some very very orthodox traditional Jews who said they wish it was you know they, that it was destroyed that it's like a it's an idol because people come and they're like worshiping the wall instead of worshiping God and you know it is. It's a wall. It's not a wall of the temple. It's, you know, most people don't even know what it really is. So it's significant. But, and, you know, I think for some people, you know, the, the illustration I've used is you've got a guy and he sings once upon a time. He sings in your neighborhood bar, right? And he's just a the guitar player or whatever in your neighborhood bar. Somebody discovers him a year later and he's like this national celebrity. And, you know, you're paying $500 a ticket to go to a concert. But he's the same singer that nobody wanted to really, you know, that not all that many people saw him. The people feel, oh, well, we're supposed to feel it. So we we, we try to feel it. And um, I'm just curious about any of the, the rest of the people here who may have been either with the Kotel or something comparable. Because, I mean, to me, it's kind of like people walk into synagogue and it's like, okay, God, hit me. <laughs> you know, I walked in, I didn't feel anything. It's like, well, that's... You know, we quote, you know, the sages of old would meditate and pray for an hour that they would be able to have, you know, it's just, you don't just go into synagogue and just like, okay, go. But I think that's what a lot of people do. You'll appreciate this, and I'm sure you've heard of this, but um, Rabbi Elliot Dorf talks about prayer like a baseball game, uh, that you, you can't, you can't assume that you're going to hit a home run if you don't go up to bat. And so you have to be, he does it much better and talks about baseball stuff that I don't understand. So you can read it some other time and you'll get it. Um, but that's the, that's the basic gist. Um, but this, the idea that if you do go to the Kotel or to Shul or whatever, and you just expect that this spiritual experience is just going to come over you, well, then you're not, you're not stepping up to that plate, right? You're not taking a swing at what could be something that is meaningful to you, you're just expecting it to happen for you. And I will say before I call in Norm, that the first time I went to the Kotel, I felt exactly that way. Like, this is so overwhelming. I don't need to be here. I was 18, I think, um, the first time I went to Israel. And my mom, like, physically pushed me to the wall and said, just touch it. <laughs> like, just, just be in this moment and touch the wall. And I remember getting very emotional and I don't really know why. And I think that it was just that it had been built up. I went to Jewish day school my whole life. It had been built up as this very spiritual place for so long that I was actually too overwhelmed to want to approach it. And then when I was there, I felt that I felt that connection not in like a prayer for way more in like a historical, this is a really cool place way. Um, but that I, I totally, I, I, I can imagine how people feel that, especially if they're kids who have heard about this place for so long and then they're being told, okay, now pray here. And they expect that something is just going to wash over them because it's such a spiritual place. And that just doesn't always happen. Norm. And then Renee. Um, the first time I remember it was very moving, but part of it is that I was very much aware that it you know, only been in Jewish hands for a very short time yeah. at that point after a very long exile. Yeah. Um, 
And when my grandmother went to Israel, she was not able to visit because it was still in Jordanian hands. Um, so for me, it was a very moving thing. And I was the person I was traveling with, he was the first Weisberg to go to Israel. I was not the first green, but he was the first Weisberg ever to go to Israel. And he was tremendously moved. And it was the entire atmosphere walking to there on Friday afternoon and being, it was very exciting. We were traveling as part of a tour group, but this was not a group activity. It was just the two of us who'd gone down there. And we foolishly had not even made arrangements for, for, for dinner that night. And we, you know, we ended up being able to still buy a ticket at the hotel that many of our friends were at, but not the hotel that we were at. We didn't try there. Um, but it was an entirely special occasion for us. And so I, I think that people sometimes feel a real strong connection to that kind of a thing, but especially then because it was only a few years since the Jews had taken it in a very heroic and exciting, um, you know, dramatic event in the, in the 67 war. And I, that was very clear in our minds at the time, even though it was already after 73, it was still a very clear and exciting time. Yeah, Renee. I also, I also find Yerushalayim very uh, spiritual and emotional. I mean, even whenever I go and just driving up to to getting there, I just start to feel all warm and fuzzy. And it's really interesting that many Israelis that I know, including ones that I know, one that I know particularly well that I live with, uh, don't aren't fond of Yerushalayim at all. They see it. They don't see that connection to Jerusalem at all. And he, he's not alone. I mean, a lot of his friends and a lot of our, our friends that we know in Israel and family that we have in Israel feel the same way. It's like Jerusalem doesn't really do anything for them. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just like any, it's just like, you know, Ramadan. Ramadan's also pretty nice. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's true. There, I mean, I lived in Jerusalem and I love Jerusalem, but, but yeah, for some people, it, it is a place that, that there is kind of so much, it's similar to what Rai Pernick was saying, um, that, that it's similar. It is, it is like putting yourself in a place where there is so much that you're supposed to feel and so much you're supposed to imagine and so much you're supposed to feel connected to that people feel like, it's a letdown, right? That you, there's all this buildup and then you get there and you visit and you're like, well, this, this is a city, just like Tel Aviv was a city and New York is a city, right? It's, it's not, people don't feel that connection. And, and sometimes I think that's why, that's why the Kotel for me, um, is not necessarily the place that if I were trying to find that connection, I would go because I think that it's actually the nooks and crannies in the country as a whole, but specifically Yerushalayim that, I have found much more connection because those aren't the places where it says on the wall, you know, this king blah, blah, blah here. And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go through all of that kind of, um, uh, like historical importance that then is supposed to make you feel something, but it's just a really remarkable place. And you're in, in this case, Jerusalem and you feel a certain way. And uh, I think they see it as more controversial too. It's a more controversial city than it some of the other cities right right uh, you, you know you could go down one street and you're in one kind of quarter and you go down another street and you're in a whole another type type of city so yeah for sure and that and for others that's part of the beauty right of being able to step one foot into one 
part of culture and uh, and existence and step out and you're in another. No, uh, but I mean, even more like, you know, they they don't associate fighting with fighting with from a gun, but they do associate it with Rush Lyon. Sure. So in that sense, the con- I see it as controversial. Sure, sure. Robert, did you have something to say? There yeah. My very first time in Israel, I, we were taken immediately to the wall that evening on, I think it was Arab Shabbat. And um, I remember feeling first, I was 20 years old, I was scared because it's the center of terrorism <laughs> uh, in Israel. But it's, you know, but more importantly, I think um, that Jerusalem and especially at the wall, it was one of the few focal points on the planet. Um, and um, where you had three religions right there. And um, so, of course, the Kotel is our center point, but you have the, um, um, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and you have uh, the Dome of the Rock or the other uh, mosque. So anyway, it was, it's the center of three religions. There aren't too many places that like that. And I've been to uh, Kyoto in Japan, and Kyoto was a very religious center of, of religion uh, in there. Uh-huh. And um, I got that sense in Kyoto. But anyway, in Jerusalem, to be in a, a focal point of not just my religion, but uh, two others was very special. Um, I, it, it was more than just a spiritual thing. Uh, I think the spirituality didn't enter my head that much, but be, as far as being Jewish and what the place represented did. Yeah. I, I'll say one thing and then Rai Parnik, you can say whatever you want. Um, I think the part of what for many, what? I think part of what for many people, um, this, the, the idea of the Kotel or specifically what Shvut goes through in the episode, uh, a, a lot of it has to do with being connected to something. Right, and going to the Kotel, you're connected to a lot of other people. Yep, there's a mechitza, I'm not gonna talk about that, but the idea that you're with a lot of other people and that they're all there to do exactly what you're there to do. And so you're part of a community. And I think that part of what people have as an interest in terms of just any kind of faith connection is feeling part of something and for Shvut, the thing that she was part of was then destroyed and taken away from her. So uh, even though and Rabbi Pernick was talking about kind of the political piece of this, but even in a moment where her belief system was so rooted in taking care of the land that she lived on and the home that she, that her family had built and created as a statement that then not only did that go away, but her belief in that community and the reason for that community went away. And I think that then going to the Kotel is a way of kind of making that puzzle piece whole again, figuring out if when you go to a place that a lot of other people are going to be feeling a spiritual connection, can you then feel that when you're there? Uh, I, I did a honeymoon Israel trip as the rabbi, um, not one of the honeymooners, which let me tell you, doing the trip as a rabbi is great because everyone else, you know, has to spend all this time with someone else. And I got a room to myself and it was very fun. Um, but you go on this trip and the first thing you do is you go to Jerusalem and the first thing they want you to do is go to the Kotel. 
And because it's uh, predominantly interfaith couples, they don't expect that you're going to just go to the main Kotel Plaza and that people are going to know what to do, right? It's, they, many of these people have not stepped foot into a synagogue that has a mechitza. And so saying, you go this way, you go that way to couples, specifically heterosexual couples who are thinking that they're going to be together, that's, that's very jarring. So we go to the Robinson's Arch portion, which is right before you enter the main plaza. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with them for Kabbalah Shabbat because, again, many of them were not particularly Jewishly uh, connected or, or literate. And I thought for that moment, this is the only part of the Kotel where they can do something together. So I had them approach the wall, which is much smaller than when you go to the main plaza so they couldn't all do it at the same time but I had them I had all heterosexual couples and I had them go up to the wall and I had one person put their hand on the wall and the other person put their hand on their partner um, and that was really emotional for me whether or not I think that that part of the wall is the hotel or not that moment of being able to have those couples be part of that experience of the Kotel together was something so special that people don't usually get because usually when you go to the Kotel, you're separated from, um, from a partner or at least from someone else who you might be going there with if they're of the opposite gender. So anyway, so I, I often think of the Kotel, no matter which, you know, third of it you're, you're, uh, visiting that it is a part you feel like you are part of something very large and something where people can come and feel that, feel that connection. I guess just to wrap us up, you know, we started off by talking about sort of the political dimension and the Gush Katif component in the, you know, um, and then sort of transition to talking about the Kotel piece. But I think, you know, you know, part of what Rabbi Shatz was just saying, you touches on that video that we played at the outset of, you know, these, the people who were, um, evacuated, kicked out, whatever word you want to use, of Gush Katif were saying, like, you know, this was for us, like, the world ending, and then you go to Jerusalem, and it's sort of like everyone's in cafes drinking coffee, and, like, nothing, it's like nothing happened. Um, and so I think that, you know, it sort of ties together these pieces of, you know, part of that faith experience is that feeling of of being connected to something larger. And I think that's part of what Shavut is struggling with is like how to find faith when like the thing that she was connected with is now gone and no one seems to care. Um, and, you know, she's kind of going to the hotel, which is another place in which people feel that connection. Um, but there's sort of, there's something that's missing there because I mean, and some people feel like, Oh, this is a place where I feel that connection to everyone else. Um, you know, but there's, you know, there's just kind of a brokenness in that relationship and whether it's the community and the connection, um, you know, that as we've talked about, it's not going to just magically heal because you go to a place and, you know, suddenly things are renewed. There's sort of a deeper level there of that brokenness that, you know, you feel like she's experiencing and she's seeking, she's looking for that connection to what she felt growing up of, feeling like she's doing God's work in 
you know, again, her name is Shvut. <laughs> like her parents clearly from a very young age have like pushed like that your job in this world is to settle this land. And so she's, you know, I think part of what she's missing is that feeling of like doing God's will. Um, and, and she's seeking it. She's trying to find it. And in, that, in its absence, she's lashing out. But that lashing out, I think, speaks to that desire, you know, to find what she felt like she once had. And interestingly, her aunt is finding that in her Shabbat community, whether or not that is a connection to God, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, this could open up into a larger conversation of just Jewish identity in general, right? Of mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to believe in God to have a strong connection to your Jewish identity or Jewish, your Jewish culture, um, but you can, you can feel connected to a, a faith and to belief in something by just being around that community, which her aunt is doing in a very different way and yet is is coming across those feelings and those struggles also. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we have two episodes left of this. Oh, Robert, would you like the final word? And then the other Rabbi Parnik. Ooh, we have, two, we have two final just, words. Okay, yeah. uh, one quick comment. Um, the the Kotal is a remnant of the second temple that was destroyed and her s- settlement was also destroyed. So she's going to a place that was destroyed to maybe find some answers <clears throat> related to where she came from. A remnant of a retaining wall, we should know. Not a, mm-hmm. not a remnant. It's a re, the Kotal is a re, remnant of the retaining wall around. Right, wall. right. But, yes, right. but it's still a place of, of yeah, uh, yeah. holy destruction. You know. Yeah, it's a great connection. It's a, it is, yeah. Padre. I, you know, I think we create we're kind of saying we, we have to create our own memories. And, and in terms of the example before, you can't hit a home run unless you step up to bat. But I always use the example as as a runner. And you, this is true for baseball. It's true for musicians. It's true for, you know, rabbis and, and others. You need to warm up. You need to prepare before you get up to the plate. You know, otherwise you're not going to do your best. So, you know, I think that's part of it. And I would just say that, you know, I, I remember there was a moment many years ago, and I, I have this thing where when I go to Israel, the first night, I always wake up at three in the morning. You know, the jet lag or whatever, I just, it, it just happens. There's nothing I can do about it. I know it's going to happen. And so I took a cab from the, uh, <laughs> I, I, one of the hotels in Jerusalem, which of course they go through different names every few years, but this is one of the ones where they were quarantining everybody in and the people revolted. The Dan Panorama on Karen Hayesod. Anyhow, a little long for a walk at 4.30 in the morning, but at 4, 4.30 in the morning, I took a cab to the hotel because it's like, I'm up, what am I going to do? And I, it was one of the very few times where I felt a sense of awe at the hotel because I realized at that moment, I was the only person in the entire world who was at the hotel. There was nobody else there. And I was like, okay, that's neat, you know. But I would also advise that for, <laughs> I hate to put it this way, but for the men who are here, sorry, um, if you go in the cave that is off to the side, that to me is a much more, if you will, authentic experience. And it can be very, very moving there because that's not the glitz and the glamour that's just 
you know, you're looking at, you know, and even to go through for, for people of all genders, you know, to go through the, uh, the Western wall excavations, the tunnel, that's, you know, that, that's, that's really neat. Cause you can really, to me, you really have a sense of history, but it's, it's like most things we get out of it, what we put into it. And a lot of people aren't willing to put that much in, but they want to get a lot out. That's a great way to end and a great message. Um, so we have two episodes left of this series. We are going to be keep, can I announce this? Yeah. We are going to be keeping class at the same time, even for next season. Um, so <laughs> Karen's very happy about that, which is great. Uh, so nothing will change. We can maybe do a little bit of a CU in two weeks. Um, but uh, but if you know of anybody who wants to start with us when we start a season, um, that'll be the first week of February. So they can catch up on the whole first season and then join us for the second if they would like. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. Really nice to see you all. Have a great, a great week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.